Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. In 1835, Oberlin College in Ohio determined that it would admit Black students, both male and female. A very few other colleges did at that time, but Oberlin was unique in that it chose to do so as an explicit matter of college policy. At Oberlin and a few other places, both before and immediately after the Civil War, Black and white students were allied first in the cause of emancipation and then for civil rights. Yet following the end of Reconstruction, even once revolutionary campuses like Oberlin and Berea College in Kentucky began to have color lines drawn across them. As John Frederick Bell demonstrates in his new book, Degrees of Equality, Abolitionist Colleges and the Politics of Race, while blacks remained in the classroom at Oberlin and Berea, they were gradually discriminated against in every other aspect of college life. Given that these colleges had been established to shape not the mental so much as the moral community uh, on its campus, this amounted to a counter-revolution that overthrew the ideals upon which Oberlin and Berea had been established. John Frederick Bell is Assistant Professor of History at Assumption University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Degrees of Equality is his first book. John, welcome to Historically Thinking. Hi, Al. Thanks for having me. So um, we should talk about Oberlin and, and, and the fascinating sort of new colleges in the 19th century. Well, I mean, I guess if you go to enough college, as we both have done, colleges are always a fascinating subject. Absolutely. And when I say revolutionary, I use the word advisedly. Mm -hmm. um, and I tried to say this, uh, these are colleges um, because they are explicitly religious and Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, they are not interested in the minds of the people. They're interested in their souls mm -hmm. and they're interested in shaping their eternal destinies. Mm -hmm. So this is a, this is a, it, the most, the most involved Dean of students would shudder at just when they realize the implications uh, for student life. Yes. Uh, uh, it's just, it, it's such a different mindset, isn't it? It is. And, you know, to go even a step further in these, the case of these particular institutions, they're not only concerned with the souls of the students, but by extension, the souls of the nation. Yes, exactly. Uh, because they, they, they have a salvific mission to the nation. Yes. And of course, this is not, in some ways, not surprising given their origins in the Second Great Awakening and the uh, aftermath of that. The idea that the, the Reformation, the, the transformation of the self should precede the transformation of society, that's kind of a hallmark of all of these uh, social reformers that come out of that. I let, just, I, yeah. Tom, if Tom Holland was here, he, uh -huh. would, he would be grabbing the microphone and saying, and of course, this is, we can see this continuing in American culture. Yes. When we say do the work, right. this is exactly yes. what we mean. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, they are very much doers. Uh, and uh, that that is a uh, that makes their the colleges that they found extraordinary places. You know, every college in the 19th century, at least by our 21st century lights, had a much more explicit uh, moral mission than a lot of colleges are comfortable talking about today. So, for instance, every college senior uh, whether at a place like Oberlin or a place like Yale or wherever, 
was taking moral philosophy as a matter of course. This is a standard graduation requirement, which um, and eventually that would go away. Um, but uh, but these colleges took that that charge um, several steps further um, in pursuit of their of their ideals. And uh, I, we should say it's not just them. I think in a previous podcast I mentioned like Jubilee College, which is based like Oxford. Oxford on the Illinois River, mm-hmm. um, where the workmen are not allowed to drink because yep. the guy, the Bishop Philander Chase, also founded Kenyon. Yeah, I mean, we uh-huh. could, these these are and a lot of these people like I, now I forget his name, the first president of Oberlin. These are goes on to found two more colleges. These are mm-hmm. serial college creators. Yeah, they, they're wandering around the they're wandering around the Midwest founding colleges. Yeah, uh, well, this was part and parcel of their kind of civic slash religious vision, um, and of course they wouldn't have separated those two categories. So in their view, uh, a college had these, these, um, these moral responsibilities and that colleges could be engines of uh, the, the transformation of, uh, of the nation, as I said, but via, in many cases, uh, the West, which in their view was you know, an untamed wilderness. We know that's not uh, true and that's a problematic way to look at it. But in their vision, um, these colleges were necessary to ensure that that region of the country uh, could become sort of an engine for uh, the larger um, reform of, of the entire United States. Uh, and so these colleges were so often tied to, uh, to new communities, and they use the word colonies, um, across the Midwest. So not, exclusive, not just the colleges that I study, but any number of others in Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, um, and so on. So uh, this is uh, these institutions distinguish themselves in certain ways, but uh, but many colleges were founded in the Midwest, in particular the Ohio Valley and Mississippi Valley, uh, along those lines. I mean, this is a complete segue, um, and I apologize, but we're going there. Uh, it is interesting. They co- we've completely lost that usage of colony, which mm-hmm. I don't think I encountered until I went as a tourist to the Amana colonies in Iowa. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, so colony, uh, the sort of like a subset of the usage at the time is like a sort of, um, it's a utopian community in mm-hmm. the midst of, well, it's, it, it's not, I mean, Amanda, when it's founded, it's certainly it's in the midst of Midwestern farmland, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it's, 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 it's something else. It's, I think these are utopian experiments. Yes. And so typically what would happen would be and this is consistent with Oberlin's story. It's consistent with a college like Knox College in Illinois story. A group of Northeasterners, combination of New Englanders and, um, and New Yorkers typically would um, create a company of settlers and would move out to one of these, would, would purchase a, um, a township's worth of land out somewhere uh, in the West after the native peoples had been removed from those places and uh, would set up a colony, uh, oftentimes, as we've said, with a college as its centerpiece. Um, and the idea would be that this was going to be a wholesome uh, place where where people could live, kind of replicate in many cases the sort of New England uh, towns where they had come from, um, but to do so in an open space uh, and with some these uh, moral ambitions and also some democratic ones as well in terms of civic participation, um, you know, access to land and things like that. So this might seem an indulgence, but I can't have someone who knows all about Oberlin um, without talking about the vicious pepper controversy <laughs> and the, and the Graham diet, which I think, I do, think it does illuminate yep. the, 
totalist ambitions mm -hmm. of these college projects and takes us very nicely into the question then of, of race and social yep. reform. Mm -hmm. So describe, I mean, it, so, so describe the Graham diet at Oberlin. Sure. So if people aren't familiar, um, I'm sure people have heard of Graham crackers, of course, sure, uh, yeah. which Sylvester Graham, the inventor of the Graham diet and the namesake of the Graham cracker would be totally appalled and repulsed <laughs> <laughs> by what the Graham cracker has become, uh, because in his world uh, and his sort of vision of, of uh, dietary reform, body reform, which is, of course, part and parcel of these larger sort of total reforms, as you say, um, a person's diet should be very... Um, uh, bland, uh, that this, that any kind of spice, uh, or sweetness or stimulant, uh, let's say in the form of coffee or, or tea, uh, would upset, you know, the, the, the balance of your, your constitution, uh, and could lead to other sinful behaviors <laughs> of various sorts. Uh, so that meant that the, the Graham diet and the whole, uh, Graham bread and things like that, uh, were meant to kind of encourage a degree of personal abstemiousness, let's say. Uh, so in practice, we're talking about uh, very bland bread and vegetables. That is essentially the, the Graham diet. Uh, and that's what was instituted at, at Oberlin at the beginning. Um, the pepper controversy, <laughs> which you're referring, uh, has to do with a professor named uh, John Cowles, who was suspicious of uh, dietary reform uh, and and uh, hostile to unseasoned food, and who can blame him? Uh, so <laughs> uh, censured for bringing his own pepper to the to the dining hall, purportedly um, to season his food. But the the other thing about cows and the real reason that he he ended up being on the outs with Oberlin is because he was opposed to the doctrine, the theological doctrine that they were proposing, which is this idea that. Um, of perfectionism, uh, or as, or what they would have called entire, where they would have used either that term or entire sanctification. So what this means is that uh, it is, or it's the notion that it's possible to rid yourself entirely of sin. So top to bottom, uh, thought, word, deed, uh, and so on. So, uh, and that of course uh, translates readily into a vision of social reform aimed with similar ambitions. So removing social sins, whether it be um, through you know abuses of alcohol, uh, the sin of slavery, um, and other you know such uh, practices, anti-dueling, all these sorts of things, uh, they saw as as social sins. Um, so it, it speaks to that. This the small sort of and funny pepper incident does speak. You're right to the the kind of uh, uh, moral atmosphere, the extreme moral atmosphere uh, that was in place at a at a place like Oberlin. So how? It, do our our black students so from the beginning, Oberlin is admitting men and women. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So it's is it the first explicit coeducational school in the United States? Yes. Uh, so it's inception in eighteen thirty three, Oberlin is admitting both men and women. Uh, a number of the other colleges we spoke about uh, that were associated with these midwestern colonies also adopted uh, forms of gender coeducation. Mm -hmm. For multiple reasons, some of it's just practical. Yeah. Uh, this youth population, they need to be educated. Uh, the other thing, though, is that it's tied in again with their uh, their vision of gender roles uh, and their, the the role of each sex in uh, contributing to society's reform. So that women had a particular role to play as uh, mothers and teachers and educators, and men had a particular role to play in the public public sphere. Um, and so that. 
that's where the co-educational aspect is coming from. But Overland is is pathbreaking in that respect. Yes. And so it, it is interesting that, that blacks are not accepted until 1835. So it's, there's correct, a two-year two right. hiatus. Yep. Do, you, do you know why there's that delay? Because certainly their commitments to abolition are, are the same in 1833 as they were in 1835, aren't they? That part... Uh, that's not quite right. So in 1833, the, the folks who come to Overland to form this colony uh, are mostly on the colonizationist wavelength. Uh, there's a minority of Overland colonists, okay. uh, including John Shippard, who's one of the co-founders, uh, who consider themselves abolitionists. But when there is a uh, lyceum debate discussion about the topic of abolitionism, I think it's in 1834 uh, or maybe 33, uh, the majority of the people present support colonization. So this doesn't, it's not founded as an abolitionist enterprise. That's interesting that, that they're colonizationists because I, I, by that point, I, I would associate colonizationists with sort of the upper South. I mm-hmm. mean, liberal, liberals in the upper South who don't find it politically or socially viable to mm-hmm. be abolitionists right. Ki- right. kind of appeal to colonization. The yeah. idea that somehow you'll deport uh, all blacks to Africa and right. solve, solve the race question. I'm mm-hmm, um, not mm-hmm. sure any of them really believe that, but, um, but <laughs> yeah. it, it is, it is, you know, it's, it's something for a Monroe or a Madison mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. John Hartwell Coke yep. um, to, uh, to back. Right. Right. Yeah. They, well, one thing that's been, that's come out in, in other scholarship recently is how prominent uh, colonizationist ideas were in the colleges of that era. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm writing about abolitionist colleges, but that's the, the, the uh, significant minority of the case. And most cases, sure. it's colonization that's dominating. And we're not just talking about um, Southern colleges. We're talking about most yeah. of the Northern ones as well. So um, I think it was a little bit more prevalent uh, in those sites. So from that perspective, uh, it's maybe not surprising. Um, of course, the college does, Oberlin does convert to abolitionism, um, mm-hmm. but that it's it's not a seamless process. There's a lot of uh, consternation on the part of the people who live there. Uh, the decision to admit African-American students is uh, only by a single vote of the trustees. So it's a, a bare majority. And uh, and it's only a trickle of, of black students to start. And of course, it uh, it's interesting because Overland becomes synonymous with uh, the movement for abolition in this period of only a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that time, some of the uh, original Oberlinites, the original colonists and the original students, some of them leave uh, mm-hmm. because they don't agree with this um, this change in policy. Just in two years. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really extraordinary the number of, the number of blacks is at Oberlin is never more than 5%, if I can recall. Before the Civil War, that's Before right. the Civil yeah. War, yeah. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, Okay. I mean, but that's, that's, is that, that's largely about the, roughly the size of the black population in Ohio. Even larger. Yeah. It's even larger. Yeah. So, but of course, compared, it's compared to the number of blacks are being educated colleges elsewhere in the United States. Right. This is a huge Huge. change. And, and, and and the graduates are extraordinarily influential. Therefore, I think you wrote a third of the, a third of them end up being teachers, you know, in the South Mm -hmm. during, during radical reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, they, they, the institution sort of punches above its weight in that respect, and certainly the, the black alums uh, do. We should say that, uh, and I make this point in the book, most people who went to college in the 19th century, or at least this in the antebellum period, for one thing, they weren't pursuing bachelor's degrees. Right. For the most part, they were in these preparatory programs, what we would think of as sort of a high school education. Yep. And many of them didn't 
uh, complete a certificate or a degree um, because they had other commitments or they didn't feel it was, um, they got as, as much as they felt they needed to do whatever it is that they wanted to do. So um, so in many cases, I use, I use the word alums uh, in, uh, to distinguish from graduates, but there were, of course, black graduates as well. And these are the first, by the way, the first, not the first African-Americans earning college degrees, um, but uh, the largest numbers anywhere in the United States where that's happening. Sure. Yeah. First so, African-American woman, I should say, to earn a college degree did go to Oberlin, Mary yeah, that, Patterson. That, yeah. that is expl- we should make that clear, too, that yeah. there is this, the preparatory school yes. is extremely important part of this story. Yes. What yes. goes on in the prep school and then, and then and not just the, the four-year college, but right. also the prep school. Right. Um, and a lot of places are called colleges in Ohio are essentially prep schools. Sure. Uh, yeah. uh, but the, so we've got blacks, men and women attending class. Uh, what's social life for them like? If, we'll mm-hmm. put a we'll link in the show notes to a very early conversation with Mark Carnes, uh, which talks a lot about, you know, I think undergraduate student life is the most part, sometimes the most interesting thing about colleges. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is the age of the literary society where yeah. this is all, so far it's just before lawyer societies are, are eliminated and then frats take their place. Yep, right. Um, so do black students participate in literary societies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so literary societies for people who aren't, aren't familiar, this is the centerpiece of extracurricular life at any college institution. I mean, and of course at a place like, like Oberlin, because of its evangelical moorings, um, you know, the students are, are going to prayer meetings. They're going to chapel. They're, they're going to, um, class, but they also have the opportunity to join these literary societies, which are formed in, in short order and which are admitting um, black students as members. Um, typically, you had to be either pursuing a bachelor's degree for men or what they call the ladies degree, which is sort of the women's equivalent, uh, in order to be admitted into one of these literary societies. Now, at Oberlin, they are gendered. So the, there's a men's literary societies and women's um, some of the other colleges I study, uh, at least for a time, they are um, co-ed, which is interesting. Mm. Um, that's very unusual. That's unusual. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but these are places where students are, um, they don't look much like like the uh, what frats and sororities do today. Uh, well, least, some, some of them do. <laughs> some of them do. Okay. Uh, there, there's definitely evidence of hijinks and things. But uh, for the most part, these are debating societies. Uh, these are conversation circles. Um, we could think of them more along those lines. Students are presenting poems, essays, uh, a meeting would typically conclude with a debate on a contemporary topic or maybe a classical topic, just depending. They're practicing the skills that they've, they rhetorical skills that they've been honing in the classroom, things like that. And um, which they intend to use in, yeah. in, in a public, because they all of them will have a public life of one kind or another at some right. point in their life. Right. And the institutions themselves are go out of their way to support the work of these literary societies because they see them as as having that extension of the curriculum. Yeah. And so these are at Oberlin are not co-ed, but they are both black and white. Yes. Yes. Um, um, what are some other evidences of integration or segregation mm-hmm. within the social life at Oberlin? So I think the biggest um, setting that, that people point to, visitors to campus and so forth, point to is the dining hall. Uh we maybe maybe it shouldn't well in many of these uh in this time period there the idea of a black and white person and a white person sharing a meal was seen as uh, an extraordinary gesture of they would have used the term social equality Mm -hmm. um so if you sit down to share a meal together it suggests that you are um that you are peers uh that you are equals that you're of, of the same sort of station or standing um and 
so for black and, and white students to do that together, for um, uh, black and white men and women to do that together was seen as a really transgressive act by Oberlin's detractors because it signaled that this uh, college was open to the idea of this really racially egalitarian way of life, um, which was far from the norm elsewhere. So that I think is probably one of the best examples that we could give. I mean, in other cases, we're talking about racially mixed groups of students organizing campus events. Uh, black students take the lead in organizing uh, celebrations of uh, the 1st of August, which used to be an abolitionist alternative to the 4th of July, celebrating uh, British West Indian emancipation. Um, they're at the forefront there. They're inviting white peers to participate in that as well. Um, so we have um, instances like that that we can point to uh, for evidence of the camaraderie between uh, two races at a place like Oberlin, uh, at least before the Civil War. The uh, dying, dying together is a... Uh... That's an excellent indicator. Um, uh, there's only one better. Uh, are there interracial romance? Mm-hmm. And that is the the sort of the third rail of uh, of, of American culture broadly at this time, um, and it's also a uh, well, argu- arguably up to so right 1968. That's right. That's and many, right. And, you know, I think I've said on the before. It seems to me like the let's just call it what they call it. Anti-miscegenation is mm-hmm. sort of that begins slavery. You yep. can't, you can't have slavery. Right. You can't have chattel racial slavery without being against miscegenation. Right. And right. you cannot overthrow the racial system without allowing it or going, yeah. back, going back to it. Cause it, cause it had already been, as it were, it was established as we know from plenty of evidence in the, in the 17th century, yes. it was ongoing because yes. humans are humans. Right. And my, my students, when I tell them that, you know, right to your point that, uh, these, uh, bans and interracial marriage originated in the 1670s, eighties and continued until the 1960s, you know, uh, so they, they are, uh, older than the United States itself. Uh, that, uh, is always a shock to them, but you're right. It's, it's a pillar, a cornerstone. Of, it, it is the cornerstone. Uh, I think yeah, uh, yeah. It, it seems to me now I've been thinking about this for a while. And, yeah. And it, I don't, yeah. We don't write enough. People don't write enough about it in some ways. It seems so fundamental. It is. It is. Um, and so for, interracial romances to occur uh, on these campuses uh, in the eyes of their detractors, uh, their critics, uh, it's not surprising. That's what they've been accusing them of yeah. from the start. Oh, yeah. and, they, and, we, and you look at uh, Guelzo's book on the Lincoln-Douglas debates, yep. even, oh, at Knox, yep. even at Knox College. Knox yep. College, <laughs> there are banners about, you know, against against it. It's yeah. like, that's the most common thing that uh, the Illinois Democrats are saying about yep. Lincoln in 1858. It's, right. just, it's just absolutely common. Sure. And of course, the Democrats invented the term misogynation. Uh, yeah, yeah, against absolutely. absolutely. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in this earlier time period, they're using the word amalgamation, but they mean yep. the same thing. Uh, yeah. And uh, so these colleges are accused of promoting amalgamation. And then when there are incidences, and they are rare, I should say, but when there are a few incidences uh, at abolitionist institutions of um, interracial romances, um, it completely panics the administrations of these schools because they're fearful of retribution um, yeah, from violence. outside forces, and yeah. it uh, and it it does happen. So, I mean, not at, at Oberlin. There are there is only really one incidence before the Civil War of an interracial relationship. But at New York Central College, another institution that I write about, there's a very high profile incidence of incident of a uh, black professor. Um, becoming engaged to a white student. And this creates, in 1853, so this creates a huge uproar uh, in the community. And ultimately, uh, both the professor is forced to resign and he and the student have to um, 
flee to uh, to England to get married, and they live out their days there. So uh, it's a hugely um, sensational episode uh, in this history. But it speaks, I think, on the one hand, to the revolutionary character of these places, these campuses. On the other hand, it also reflects the the misgivings or the hesitations of the of particularly the administrators there about the implications of their experiments. Before we get to New York Central, mm-hmm. um, you did mention that there was a black professor there, and it's notable that Oberlin um, did not hire black professors. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are there's certain other inequities that you uh, observe by carefully mm-hmm. studying the record. So, what are what are some ways in which the even during the height of Oberlin's abolitionist fervor, mm-hmm. what were some of the color lines that were drawn? maybe in a very light pencil, but they're right. there. Yes, they are there. And that's, you know, in, in calling this book Degrees of Equality, one of the my ambitions was to point to the fact that even though the overall story is very much a declension narrative, uh, there are also, when we have a declension narrative, we set up sort of the things were, were better at one point and they got worse. But if we if we make the, the better side a little bit too rosy, then we miss these, as you say, these fainter uh, color lines that were in fact in place so that there, uh, it wasn't an absolute equality that degenerated. There were these qualifications on um, black people's presence on these campuses. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get at with the, the title. Um, so there are subtle, um, well, certainly there are out and out forms of, of, uh, of racism that black students encounter from time to time. Um, and you know, for instance, a white student is expelled for calling a black classmate the N-word in 1843. Things oh, like expelled, that. He's expelled for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an interesting episode because I think if, if the same thing were to have happened 40 years later, I don't do not think that a yeah. uh, student would have been punished in the same way, but we can talk about that. Uh, there are other uh, incidences that are less explicitly racially charged, although maybe implicitly so. I talk about an episode in the book where two black students and, and two white students encounter each other on a town sidewalk, uh, and they debate about who should step off the sidewalk into the mud. Uh, and uh, anyway, that ends up in a tussle. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's another uh, small incidence. But this that's, thing about... I mean, that, I mean, as for someone like me, so interested in the honor culture, that's, yes. a, that's a fascinating thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, you couldn't really ask for a better... No, of, it's uh, the most awesome, the most <laughs> awesome anecdote. Yeah, demonstration of that. Um, but this, this point about black faculty is interesting. So um, George Vachon, who is the first black graduate of Oberlin and a very distinguished figure in, in African-American education in the 19th century in general, go on to become the first black professor at Howard and so on. Um, he, uh, even at, around the time he's graduating, there's conversations about, well, maybe we should keep him around you know, as a, as a faculty member, which from a qualification standpoint would not have been out of line because we forget that Professors didn't have PhDs. There weren't PhDs to get, even, uh, you know, in, in the 1840s. I mean, uh, it's standard procedure at Oxford and Cambridge up right. in, up into the mid-20th century, yeah. maybe maybe beyond, uh, is that you get, <laughs> you get the smartest undergraduates and you immediately turn them around and put them to teaching undergraduates. You know? And so, so Vachon's name is sort of put forward informally or there's some conversations about that, but it doesn't happen. And in the early 1850s, the trustees receive a petition from a portion of the community um, requesting that the the college appoint a black faculty member in recognition of the fact that around that same time, the black percentage of the student body is peaking. Um, as we said, Oberlin has become synonymous with abolition at that point. It's the go-to place for African-Americans seeking higher education. Um, 
And yet, uh, they also receive a counter petition uh, from an unnamed other group of citizens asking that this not happen, that this not take place. Uh, and the trustees issue a statement that says, and this is in 1853, saying that they will judge potential hires by their merits and not by their race. But looking at the, um, the number of students who were eligible to be hired uh, in tutoring positions, which is a very common way in which uh, upperclassmen were hired to teach in the preparatory school, um, large percentage, maybe a quarter of the, the preparatory student, or the, excuse me, the college students were being asked to do this. Um, there were uh, more than, I think there were, I think it's seven or eight eligible uh, black students to uh, fill these roles, and yet none of them was tapped to do it until 1863. Um, so to me, that suggests that there's there's a hesitation there. And in fact, the first black student to be uh, tapped to fill one of those roles, uh, Fanny Jackson, later Fanny Jackson Coppin, explicitly says uh, that there was a custom of not hiring black students to do this. Uh, so, so she's aware of it. Yeah. So why is that? I think it's this. It's at at its root. I think it's the same. Uh, hesitancy, the same apprehension that we see uh, around the issue of interracial marriage, which is um, you're you're investing uh, a black person with a social role that has traditionally been uh, both raced and gendered, uh, and so particularly the idea of a, a black man teaching a class that consists of both. Uh, uh, largely of white men, but especially of white women, um, that is seen as threatening, I think. Um, you could go a step further and say that this reflects potentially some suspicions of the black intellect, but I don't think that that's really true because there's a lot of admiring discussion about the fitness, the intellectual fitness of the black students there. And of course, they're made to measure up to all the same standards. So it's not along those lines. I think it has this more um, they're concerned more about the social implications of, of doing that. And I don't think it's coincidental that when they hire the, the woman, they hire Fanny Jackson, it's happening at the exact moment of emancipation. So there's a, an opening there and she is also eminently qualified. Um, and is also a person who, um, has this sort of, uh, unusual, uh, degree of training. Uh, she's acknowledged for her refinement. She meets these kind of like classic, uh, white metrics for um, respectability, uh, and that's that's important, I think, to her hiring. Yeah, that's it, interesting. I I I tend I, I would go for the I would root this in the same uh, soil as the anecdote of the two students arguing over who should step off the sidewalk. Um, it's about honor and status, and I mean there is that having a black man over a. a, a both men and women in, in, in a classroom. And who do you put in authority? It's it's who who's in authority, and it's it's um, as liberated as you are in 1845, 1855. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a really it's a big step. It uh, is, you know, that's a big step to think to think through. Yeah, um, and it's interesting that you know Oberlin's sister school, New York Central, does hire George Vachon. Yeah. Uh, to be one of a series of black professors. Uh, so let's talk. Let's talk yeah. about New York Central because it's, yeah. it's a short-lived experiment. Yeah, but it has some very interesting. There's some very interesting results from the lab test. Yeah, um, <laughs> like George Vachon, like the yeah. professor, uh, the 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 interracial mm -hmm. uh, marriage that mm -hmm. had to go move to England. Because right. could you tell some of those those stories? Yeah. So I like to say that New York Central College is the most interesting college that no one's ever heard of uh, <laughs> because uh, 
it is that's easily true <laughs> uh, and it is also in some ways it, it is the exception that proves the rule of this book um so i chose to focus on on three schools for this book oberlin new york central and, and berea as you said at the top um and New York Central only gets a chapter because its, it's history is so much shorter than these others. But I think it's a really worthwhile episode to look at because it is so radically experimental. As you say, um, this is an institution that, whereas Oberlin kind of equivocated on how committed they were to an idea of, uh, of racial egalitarianism, uh, by comparison, uh, New York Central is much more uh, full-throated and unambiguous in their embrace of these ideals. And ultimately, arguably, uh, to their downfall, because uh, they aren't able to secure the kind of funding you need to fuel such a radical enterprise. Um, this is an institution that's founded by um, a small sect of abolitionist Baptists, um, which distinguishes it from Oberlin and, and uh, Berea, which were more on the congregational Presbyterian wavelength. Um, and they start the school in upstate New York. If people are familiar with Cortland County, it's kind of between Syracuse and Binghamton. Um, and it's in a small village where they choose to found the school. So it's not a colony, actually. It's a pre-existing town. Um, it's a town that had a reputation for being racially open-minded. It's where Samuel Ringgold Ward, the black abolitionist and minister, actually uh, pastored a white congregation uh, for a period of time. So they're seen as a more hospitable setting than others. It's not quite in the burned over district, but it's close. Um, and New York Central from the jump hires a black professor, the first black professor in American history, Charles Reason. Uh, they hire uh, uh, white women who they give the title of professor. It's not quite clear that they have all quite the same roles, but they give them that title. Um, and back to your point about authority, that these kinds of things matter. Um, they play host to all so many of the reform luminaries of their day, whether it's Wendell Phillips, Frederick Douglass, uh, Horace Greeley, um, Lucretia so, Mott, all Sylvester of Graham. Uh, I don't know if Graham, I'm not sure what Graham is up to at <laughs> that point. Be, I don't want to be facetious, but he is a reform figure, yeah, right, right. I mean, I, we, we can make fun of him and <laughs> imagine his reaction to some more, but you know, he's, <laughs> he's, he's, part of, he's part of the panoply of reform, yeah. He wouldn't, I don't think he would have been unwelcome. I know they ate yeah. Graham bread there, that much I know. <laughs> uh, Graham bread and baked beans, um, God yeah, bless. uh, <laughs> but uh, but they so it's it's uh. And it's also a, a school that's uh, synonymous with the um, with the Underground Railroad and the movement to support um, fugitive slaves. So they're um, the same guy who is uh, nominally their age fundraising agent is uh, imprisoned as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. Uh, so he's John Chapin. So um, so it has John, these John these. Anyway, go, go on. Uh, yeah. So he had, so the credentials, I mean, the, the abolitionist credentials of this place run very, the radical credentials of this place run yeah. very deep, um, but they also get it into trouble um, with the wider public and also with their potential supporters. I mean, it's, they never managed to get out of debt uh, oh. and, uh, and they also have these series of controversies. That they, Who does yeah. give money to them? Mm. Uh, so they do get initial support pledges from the, the local community. Um, that's how they were able to kind of secure, have the winning bid uh, for the college. But the local community is actually quite explicit in saying, uh, we will support uh, some of the administrative costs of this institution, but we are not going to pay the capital costs uh, associated with this place. Uh, and they're depending on the, the, uh, the wider kind of benevolent universe in order to support that. So they do get some high profile backers. The most famous would be Garrett Smith. 
um, the uh, philanthropist and abolitionist uh, who's there also living there in upstate New York. Um, and he actually ends up purchasing the college in an effort to save it from bankruptcy uh, in the late 1850s, which is ultimately unsuccessful. But um, he is probably their most high profile supporter. But they for years, they published these plaintive appeals in the Liberator and other Frederick Douglass's paper and so on, just begging for uh, support and clearly not getting it. And then the Panic of 1857, I think, really does them in um, at the end when their creditors come calling. So they've got female faculty. Mm-hmm. They've got black. They've got the first black professor. Black, mm-hmm. um, what else? What are some other of their lab yeah. results? For the I mean, experiment? they. Uh, this is one of those institutions where the literary society is co-ed. Mm-hmm. It's also a place where there is no female curriculum uh, or female mm-hmm. uh, quote unquote ladies course mm-hmm. so that all of the students in the preparatory school are, are studying together and likewise the college. Um, so those are, are its most distinguishing um, features. Uh, and as I say, arguably the, these are the same ones that uh, the, uh, made the the public a little bit wary of supporting it uh, to the same degree. So, New York Central ends in eighteen fifty seven. The third fifty eight. Fifty eight. Okay. Uh-huh. The um, the third of the colleges is Berea College in mm-hmm. Kentucky, mm-hmm. Um, but that's not founded until after the Civil War. So we're back. We're so, okay, we should explain that. Let's, let's uh-huh. talk about the the Civil War and and basically. Oberlin and the Civil War. Sure. Uh, and, so, then we'll, and then we'll move to Berea. Sure. So um, there's a book called uh, The Town That Started the Civil War. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, well, I'll link to that in the last uh, what, recent uh, show notes. Probably yes. do, do it again. Yeah. Uh, bit, of a, an exa- bit of an exaggerated a, claim. But, uh. there's a, and there's a, I, had a, uh, I had a children's book on the, uh, the time the slave catchers came to Oberlin. Yes. Which right. is a very famous incident. So you can, yes. you can describe that one too. I oh, just I, briefly. Yeah. 1858, one of my slave named John Price was yep. um, uh, brought to, uh, or, or there was a, an attempt to rescue him from uh, a town nearby Oberlin um, by these Oberlin abolitionists who got word that he was being held there by these mm-hmm. uh, slave catchers. And it's a successful liberation, but his liberators are put on trial for violating the fugitive slave law. Um, and um, they're, um, one of them in particular, one of the, the black members of this liberating party, uh, Charles Langston, actually gets the harshest sentence. But he gives this very famous address uh, during his um, uh, his sentencing in which he's arguing for the uh, well, some of these classic Oberlin principles, right? The equal, the brotherhood of humankind, his own manhood, uh, his 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 rights and the rights of, of all Americans and so on. Um, anyway, it's a famous incident and it speaks to the sort of lead up to the Civil War and that it generates a lot of attention. And there's a famous photograph too of, yes, of, of black of all and white in jail. men of o- Oberlin. Uh, is, it, is it in jail or is it? Or in... standing in a prison yard, I think. Yeah, I think or like a jail yard. Here. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, um, it's interesting because I fo- I photoshopped guns into their hands, but they can't be because they were in jail. Uh, well, um, I think that the- some of them are carrying weapons. I'm almost certain that Charles Langston was yeah. the black yeah. person in this in this incident. Um, the it's this kind of debate about pacifism uh, mm-hmm. yeah. in in that time period among abolitionists, but they were um, not up. They were they had <laughs> made their own determination about that. I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, but uh, but this is you know seen as a um, uh, I mean it's a sort of 
notorious event in the uh, again in the eyes of Overland's critics, but it also speaks to their commitments. And so when the Civil War actually happens, the first of all, the college is sending you know large uh, contingents of men to fight, um, and they're also um, keeping up their uh, their abolitionist activism on campus. And and in my own discussion of this time period, I'm most interested in the um, the role of black women, because, well, for one thing, um, you know, there are fewer men on campus to begin with. So women's role on campus is more significant. And the other thing is that these black women are speaking to so many of the, the concerns of the emancipation moment, Mm -hmm. because they are aware they're the most vulnerable members of this experiment by far, uh, by virtue of their race and gender combined. Uh, and so they know that, that, uh, what it's going to take, I think, to, uh, make some of the the promise of this moment permanent, and so they they talk very openly about that in various ways through art, uh, through their writing, through their teaching. Uh, they're really uh, interested in uh, in promoting this this more uh, egalitarian vision and this presumption of equality. Not that African American equality is eventual, but that is um, that is actual. Um, so that's where they're coming from. So, um, what are some of the things that they do? The the thing that I guess has received the most attention, and you mentioned it before, is going off to serve as teachers uh, in the um, in the South. There, some of the first, this is of course before the war has even ended. Uh, they're serving as teachers in places like uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Um, later, after the war in in Mississippi, uh, and in these places, not only are they using the skills they've learned as teachers to to educate, uplift other African Americans, they're also confronting the prejudices not only of the the white populace of these places, but also of the white reformers who are their colleagues in these places, because they're they're oftentimes being excluded in various ways from full participation in um, in the uh, in the administration of these schools, or not allowed to live in the same um, facilities, which again speaks to this issue of social equality uh, that we've seen elsewhere. Uh, and they protest this, uh, and they write to. Uh, the leaders of the American Missionary Association go straight to the top with their concerns and point out that if this uh, enterprise is going to be successful, if uh, there's going to be the transformation of Southern and by extension American society, if it's going to, to, to work, then there can't be any equivocation about this issue of the, the fitness of African Americans for full citizenship or their uh, innate equality. So they make this, these claims very uh, very plain, and they are very um, outspoken in their in their activism. So let's talk finally uh, about my. Well, I guess it's still one of my favorite colleges in America, uh, Berea mm-hmm. College. Yeah. Which, um, you know, if you re, if you, I'll, I'll link to their Wikipedia entry, it should still shame lots of colleges in existence who, who don't think uh, we can do a lot. You can have lots of different types of colleges in America, and it's really amazing to me that Berea is one of the only of its kind. It is where, still where, where you can go. Um, basically, every admitted student has a four year scholarship, yep. uh, and there's a, a work requirement, yep. and it's and it's a great liberal arts college. Um, yes, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be just Berea. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay, uh, that's mm-hmm. a se- that's a separate issue, and uh-huh. uh, I can feel a rant and rave coming on. So I'll, I'll stop now. <laughs> yeah. um, Berea, um, I said it was after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, you corrected me. So yeah. what, what's the actual date? So Berea's inception is a little bit difficult to date because it starts as a colony in the early 1850s, and 
they found a school there in 1855, and then they start talking about a university in 1859. So they draw up some tenets of a university in 59. Uh, but the before they can really get that off the ground, uh, the entire colony is chased out of the state. Um, the leader of this colony, uh, a minister named John Fee, is accused of being sympathetic to John Brown based on some some comments he made uh, out of state, at, and uh, this is enough to to warrant the the suspicion and the outright you know antagonism of um, of their neighbors, and they're forced to to leave, uh, and they don't return until late 1865. So the college, the school itself, doesn't reopen until early 1866. Uh, but when it opens after the Civil War, it is uh, and in, it is open to um, both black and white students. Explicitly. Men and women. Yeah, and men and women. And so it's not only the first interracial college in the South, it's also the first co-educational college in the South. Right. Um, and right and even beats Oberlin in the sense that it's both interracial and co-educational together from the very beginning. From the start. So yeah, yeah New York Central would fit that bill too, but it, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Fee is a remarkable man. He is. Uh, and he's also remarkable because he knows his limitations and yes. he, he doesn't, he's not the, he's not a, um, uh, overpowering president. He doesn't insist on in being involved in everything at Berea. So he, right. he, he hands it off the, mm. the, the job to someone else. So yeah. what, 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 what do they create there? Yeah. So fee is a remarkable, uh, figure. I wish he was, he was better known. Hopefully this yeah. book can help uh, with that. But, um, here's a guy who's the son of the South, uh, mm-hmm. the Upland South. He's a Kentuckian by birth. Um, he goes to Lane Seminary, where so many of the um, future Oberlinites went um, before they, the school converted to abolition. Um, and he himself is converted from, from a pro-slavery position to an anti-slavery one and into an abolitionist one. And he preaches abolition in, in, Kentucky. in Kentucky before the Civil War, um, getting into all manner of scrapes uh, in the process. Uh, he becomes an agent of the American Missionary Association there, again, before the Civil War. Um, and, uh, and he's uncompromising in his vision. So he preached this gospel of, of impartial love that, mm-hmm. uh, is predicated on the notion that God is no respecter of persons, uh, that, that God made all nations of the earth of one blood. Uh, and he really promotes this idea of consanguinity after the war. He, he, uh, adopts black children, um, into his household. And he is the, the prime mover of the Berea, uh, experiment. But to your point, he also knows that he can't do it alone. So he has this alliance with Oberlin, bringing Oberlin graduates uh, to teach, to join the faculty, and then ultimately to lead the school as president. So he's never the president of Berea, although he is in charge of the board of trustees for a long period. Um, And it would be somewhat unfair to say that Berea is the Oberlin of the South, although that comparison is, is easy to make. It would be unfair because the school um, was created under its own auspices, but also uh, was quite different in terms of its composition. So we're talking about a school that was between 50% to 75% African-American, uh, maybe not quite 75%, between 50% and, and uh, two-thirds African-American from uh, 1866 through the 1890s. It's, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. Um, you have an interesting um, disquisition, uh, <laughs> a sidebar almost, mm-hmm. on um, the seal of Berea College. Yeah, which uh, it's you're like a philologist. <laughs> or, 
or like Harvard Harvard symbologist Robert Langdon, if you mm. if you remember that from the Da Vinci mm-hmm. Code. Um, <laughs> no thanks. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, so, could you describe the early seal? Because I mean, it's pretty explicit what yes. he's what he's yeah. about. Right. So it includes that verse from Acts, um, you know, that God hath, hath made of of one blood all nations of men. In English uh, too. Not in English. English. Not in Greek. Right, not, right. Not, no, not, English. not in English. There's some more yeah. Latin on there too, yeah. but the but that slogan that is in English. Um, and they so they pick that up in the late 1860s, early 1870s, and carry it forward uh, until about the end of Reconstruction. But then uh, that seal disappears uh, off the, the letterhead, and eventually it's replaced by a very different um, slogan, which is uh, in order to promote the cause of Christ, which is a pretty uh, ambiguous uh, message, or at least ambiguous amongst religious-oriented colleges at that time. Yeah. Um, and that, along with a bunch of other administrative decisions, speaks to the sort of retrenchment or the counter-revolution, to use your word, uh, that's afoot at a place like uh, Berea by the 1890s. What? Um, h- how radical was Berea during the Reconstruction? Mm. I, mean, I mean, we've already given a sense that of this this idea of consanguinity, mm-hmm. uh, this um, certainly fees personal life, but also right. the fact the fact that it's a majority black, that whites are a minority there, mm-hmm. and they actually yeah. choose to attend, which yes. is which is interesting. Yes, um, interesting to say what what they think about right. social status, what right. they think about things. Um, uh, so what's uh, what's the society there? What's undergraduate society like? Mm. On the face of it, you know, in terms of the the features of, of college life, it's much as what we said for Oberlin. So there, the students are are dining in the same places. They're living in the same dormitories, although not uh, as roommates. There's possible possibly one uh, instance of a black and white student rooming at Ober- at Berea. Rather, I can't prove that, but it's possible uh, based on some sources uh, that never happened at Oberlin. Um, how do we, how do, how would you know that? Do they, do they, is there, are there roommates written down? By yeah. Someone? So, so college catalogs, I don't know if you've ever seen these, these 19th century college catalogs or a precursor to a yearbook. So they would indicate who the faculty members are, um, the program of study, and then the names of all the students in the various departments of the school. And in some cases they would also list what dorm they lived in and what room they lived in. Uh, and in this one instance, there is a, a black student and a white student listed in for the same room. Um, that's the only instance I've encountered in, in all of my research of this. Now, I can't be the reason I hesitate is that I can't be 100% certain that they were in there at the same time. Uh, you know, it's possible that the one guy got sick or something and left. I, I don't know. Um, but uh, but there's a possibility there, which in and of itself is interesting and and uh, uh, unusual. At any rate. Um, the literary societies are a big uh, feature again at Berea. It's a co-ed literary society, uh, at least at the at the beginning. Um, and the the amazing thing for you know for uh, post Civil War Kentucky is that the the overwhelming evidence for for camaraderie amongst the students there. So it's this is from the observations of people who come to campus. They're bowled over by this, and then also looking. Uh, at the records, particularly the disciplinary records, which are a real goldmine for me in terms of the uh, student behaviors and activities, we see that interracial student groups of students are getting in trouble together. Um, yeah, that's good. That's good data. Yeah. So they're not, and the, and you know, it includes a little bit of uh, the faculty minutes will include because they were the ones adjudicating these these uh, transgressions or whatever. They they'll include some little description of what it is that had happened or whatever. And that's, yeah, that's really a goldmine for me in the absence of, you know, a student newspaper or something. What are um, they doing? What are they doing together? 
to get smoking, okay. uh, horseplay, truancy, drinking occasionally. Um, you know, well, the, the usual, usual thing. Yeah, yeah the usual yeah. stuff. <laughs> um, Horseplay, horse that can cover all sorts of stuff. It could. Uh, but, you know, this is in contrast to later on when there were interracial incidents and they're hostile, uh, yeah. you know, because this is also a culture where uh, carrying a knife is very common. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the amount of incidences, both between races and with and uh, interracial um, like knife fights at these schools is uh, really really surprised me. At Berea um, or Oberlin? At Berea, okay. uh, yeah, no, not Oberlin. Not at Oberlin. That's, no, not, that's, uh, not, that's no, not. No, this is maybe a Kentucky thing. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But uh, at any rate, um, so so it's remarkable in that respect. So remarkable as to be alarming to the to some of the northern Oberlin educated faculty, who uh, who were surprised and in some cases shocked by the the intimacy that they they're witnessing so how does this begin to change let's mm-hmm. let's stick with berea and yeah. then we'll, we'll move back to oberlin sure so in berea's case things kind of come to a head in 1872 uh in this incident that's described as a social equality controversy or uh incident where they're the faculty have spoken out against interracial relationships because there's some of those um, kind of forming or suggestions of some of those forming. Um, some some Oberlin fa- educated faculty who are at Berea have criticized that possibility. Um, this leads to a backlash from the students who feel like that any restriction on something like that would be a violation of Berea's values of that one blood consanguinity doctrine. Um, and so the trustees are ultimately forced to adjudicate this question about whether or not the college should permit uh, uh, a man and a woman of different races from uh, from courting. And uh, they issue a very ambiguous ruling on the topic, which on the one hand doesn't forbid the practice, but it also strongly discourages the practice. Um, and it also in very colorist terms. Uh, so it's, it's really uh, a watershed moment uh, in the eyes of the, the black students who live through it, uh, they point they point back at this and say, "This is the moment where uh, our the the unfolding of our experiment, the harmony that we've been experiencing, was uh, began to be uh, snuffed out." But it's not uh, like an overnight thing. Uh, that's 1872. Over the next 17 years, arguably, what I see in the in the research is is not so much a a uh, an immediate separation of the race, races, but rather a gradual estrangement that happens. So the inc- those interracial incidences of students getting in trouble together become less and less frequent as we get into the late 1870s and the early 1880s. And, um, and, they're, uh, and then the visitors who are coming to campus are commenting on the fact that while they don't see any racial strife, they also don't see as, nearly as much um, interracial contact as they once did. And ultimately, you know, things come to a head in 1889, when there is an outright racially charged incident and white students refuse to allow black students to sit at their table at the dining hall. Um, and that, even though it's a one-time, you know, a one-off incident, it, uh, there are huge shockwaves generated by it because of the symbolic significance, as we said before, of the, the common table. And also, I mean, too, I mean, this is a religious community. Yes. <laughs> common, right. ta- common table means something. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I didn't mention that before, but the idea of sharing a meal is intimately tied with the Lord's Supper. Uh, yeah. Especially, especially for Baptists and, and of this. Yes. I mean, this yep. is this is where you know this is people who have the table in the midst of their congregation when they have the the, the Lord's Supper together. Um, so, 
it um it's only 25 years after the so there are plenty of people around who must see that as the utter repudiation of everything that fee had right and fee for. himself is still alive uh so what, what does he yeah. think about this uh i mean yeah he, everyone is is appalled by this it's it's the alumni association is is up in arms but the most interesting character at that moment is the then president who's dying uh and seems to know he is dying um, he was uh, an Oberlin graduate and also a longtime principal of the Oberlin Preparatory Department, who goes on to be the first president of Berea, starting, I think it's in 1868. And he had always sort of taken the view that um, that race relations would unfold organically so long as the students were held to a high moral standard um, and that there wasn't necessarily a need to make explicit the uh, the college's belief in social equality or it's con conforming to that um, principle. And he sees this happen and he undergoes uh, a personal transformation of sorts. And he comes out and says very explicitly that this prejudice against social equality has been to the detriment of any kind of progress for African-Americans. He's looking not just at Berea, but he's looking around at what's happening in the South in the late 1880s, uh, the sort of early days of Jim Crow and saying, you know, these pretend fears of race mixing are leading to all of African-Americans' rights being stripped away. Uh, and we need to hold the line as an institution, Berea does. And so he comes out very firmly, firmly enough that that some of the, the American Missionary Association sponsors of Berea uh, respond with, with consternation. Like, I can't believe he's talking about this. Should we even be talking about this? Is this going to hurt us? And so on. Um, so it's a remarkable turnabout uh, for him. Unfortunately, he dies shortly thereafter. But there is a brief renaissance of that kind of interracial harmony feeling afterward. One of the things that the alumni insist on is the repudiation of those uh, trustee ruling in 1872. So it's very much still on their minds that this was a that was a bad decision, that it was a, uh, a mark on uh, or stain on Berea's character and that it needs to be expunged and that it is in fact done. So this, I mean, it, to my mind, it's extraordinary that this conversation that it, it goes in that direction mm -hmm. that late in the 1880s, yes. which uh -huh. is, um, you know, we can, we can quit, but certainly it's after 1876. It's after, oh, way after that. Way, it's long after yeah. that. It's long after radical reconstruction. Right. Those embers have died down mm -hmm. uh, in lots of other places in the South. Now, right. maybe right. not that much, it's, right. but we're on the verge of the, Ben Tillman in South Carolina yes. and Bilbo oh, and Varman, yep. and all that. That's yep. a, that's yep. soon to come, right. but we're not there yet. Right. Uh, so what what ends this then at Berea? Because it does come to an end. But I, I think that it's interesting to see the difference between Berea and Oberlin. Yeah, yeah, no, it is it is interesting. So again, the the financial piece is critical, just as it was in New York Central. So Berea, its fundraising has stagnated. Uh, once the the reconstruction enthusiasm has waned, once that abolitionist generation has started to die off, uh, and uh, the president whose health prevents him from doing a lot of this fundraising work, Berea's in, in pretty rough shape by uh, the early 1890s, uh, financially speaking. And so they need um, a savior figure to come in, a, a new president to come in and and help revive the place. And the person that they um, that they want and that they get uh, is an Oberlin professor, um, William Goodell Frost, who is the grandson of William Goodell, the abolitionist. So he has great credentials there. He's an Oberlin graduate as well as being a, a faculty member. And they bring him in to essentially to save the school. And he, his program is, 
is in some ways aligned with Berea's traditional mission. He, he's not an opponent of uh, integration. He's not an opponent of women's education. But he does explicitly say that if Berea is to survive, it needs more white students. So whereas previously there had never been any kind of quota either way for white or black students, Frost is, is prioritizing the admission of white students for the first time in Berea's history. And this um, raises, uh, raises hackles among the, the black alumni and some of the white alumni who believe that this is contrary, any discussion of this is contrary to Berea's mission. Um, but from Frost's perspective, he believes that Berea needs to distinguish itself from uh, HBCUs uh, in the South, if it's going to win any sort of phil philanthropic support. And ultimately, his strategy for doing the, this is to rebrand Berea as a school for white, um, what he called the mountain whites or the white Appalachians, mm -hmm. um, a new constituency that philanthropists could get behind uh, and that white philanthropists would be excited to get behind because they are white like them. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're seen as this sort of romantic, forgotten ancestors. Uh, of course, this is a time of the sort of cult of Anglo-Saxonism that we associate with people like Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, and so the Appalachians are a great, um, great population to use in order to, um, to revive uh, Berea's fortunes. And it's successful. In 20 years, he, he, uh, um, Berea's endowment grow, grows, I think, 10 times between 1892 and 1912. Uh, but it's at the expense uh, of, uh, of African-Americans standing at the school and their enrollment declines precipitously. So they go from being, you know, two thirds of, of Berea's enrollment uh, at their height to being um, down to about 15% uh, uh, by the turn of the century. It's a remarkable turnabout. Yeah. Well, and it's amazing how successful it was in basically erasing the previous history mm -hmm. yeah. of Berea. Cause yeah. I mean, I, 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 until I started, when I knew about Berea, I knew there was a work college mm -hmm. and I thought it was for poor mountain Southerners. <laughs> you know, that's, I thought that was its history. Yeah. Uh, so that, that fundraising campaign. And also, I mean, I, I, I don't know if anyone's done this, but he really wished the Booker T. Washington had become president of Berea. Um, he it, was it in communication with Frost. Uh, really? Yes. So they were they were correspondents. And in a it, sense, it, they're promoting the same vision of industrial education. Yeah. Uh, except that Frost is mainly interested in that program for for these mountain whites. And uh, and um, yeah, so they, they are it on the same wavelength. To some it, degree. Sho it shows you that the, the, the power of a, of a, a good fundraiser who is not Frost could have done something, you know. Um, right. But um, anyway, uh, so how is Oberlin's story different at the time? Um, oh, one thing I didn't say, it, does, 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 what's the, what do Berea's neighbors think of all this? I mean, I mean, this, you would think that during, you would have thought the Klan would have paid a visit. They did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they did. And yeah. So, I mean, but on the other hand, it would seem to me that a lot of the people at Berea, they all have knives. They all have <laughs> knives too. So that there's yeah. there's 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 ability to yeah. push back. Yes, you know? yes. So there there is hostility from um, various white supremacist groups. Well, unfortunately, even up till today at Berea, but uh, but in in the time period, um, and uh, they are able to stand their ground. In part, some of it's just uh, topographically <laughs> they're at the top of a hill, uh, but uh, but they've always been. Their, their neighbors uh, in you know nearby Madison, Kentucky, and places like that, they have always been suspicious and and hostile to the enterprise. They're delighted when that uh, incidence of um, 
segregation happens in the dining hall or that that anim, racial animus in the dining hall, um, they they really uh, are pleased by Berea's uh, challenges. And of course, ultimately, the state of Kentucky uh, in the early 20th century passes a law banning racially integrated higher education. And of course, Berea is the only racially integrated college in the state. So that law is explicitly aimed at the college. Um, so that there's a lot of, of hostility uh, to the college that longstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, Oberlin. Yeah. The Oberlin story is in some ways, it does in track in some ways with the Berea story, but in other ways it's different. I think some ways it's different, or the main reason it's different comes down to the demographics of the institution. Um, Oberlin's post-bellum uh, black enrollment did go up from its antebellum uh, days. So we're at about seven or 8% black students in the 10 years or so after the Civil War, and then it dips again. But at Oberlin, there is an estrangement that happens, uh, but the timeline is a bit different for starters. Uh, So there is a very similar dining hall incident, but it actually happens before Berea's incident. So it happens in the 1882-1883 school year, you see white students refusing to sit at the same tables as their uh, black counterparts. And of course, the question is, is why? For me, and, the, and my ability to answer that is, of course, dependent on what sources are, are there. At Oberlin, unlike at Berea, there was a longstanding, and it's still the college newspaper. At the time, it was the literary magazine, uh, the Oberlin Review. And all of the members of different literary societies would, would help edit the magazine and then contribute pu- things that they wrote for their meetings to it. Looking in the pages of the review, I, start to, I started to see the, the sort of uh, initial stirrings of some of these racial resentments, which would take form um, in the early 1880s, whether it's the inclusion of racist jokes in the pages of the magazine, uh, whether it's this kind of blind faith in uh, laissez-faire liberalism of uh, to right all wrongs and raise all boats. Um, their silence on issues like the overturning of the Civil Rights Act in 1883 uh, start to to uh, give give me some clues that, that there was a, a divestment uh, among the white students from the the livelihoods of their black counterparts. And then the other big thing is that the the students' attention, the white students' attention, uh, is turned elsewhere, particularly toward foreign missions and to temperance. Um, so they're not they're not invested in the black freedom struggle the way they were in the days of abolition. So that's very, that's kind of what the, that's very reflective of what sort of abolitionist, um, some abolitionist eminences mm-hmm. had done as well. That's right. You know, once it was over, well, let's move on to mm-hmm. something else. Yes. Been there, done that, uh, kind yeah. of attitude. And, 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 and also we've done our part. I think that's yeah. kind of the attitude. Yeah. But the uh, the racist jokes is really that's un, that's interesting and unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That 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 was, that was uh, given the they they had expelled a student for the N word. Yes, right, exactly. So then you see words like Sambo in the uh, in the literary magazine. You think you know what what's changed here, and um, I think some of it does again speak to that estrangement or that lack of solidarity, um, and also to the respectability politics that were very strong at a place like Oberlin uh, always, but especially in that um, in that era. What's of course the their definition of respectability is mm-hmm. culture the cultural definition is altered and yes uh, and not just the, the culture outside but also the culture inside yes um, right. so you see that the and it, we see these the, what had previously been drawn in pencils now mm-hmm. they're fi- they're drawing in darker darker hues yeah yeah so, so, so there's there's a social uh, there's basically social inequality mm. yeah that starts to emerge 
it's not immediate, uh, but it is gradual to the point that whereas the administration in the 1880s had uh, reacted strongly to these incidences of the ostracism of black students, that becomes more accepted in the dining hall. It becomes more accepted in the residence halls so that these places have been racially integrated spaces. And then by the turn of the century, um, they might reserve one or two rooms in the dormitory for uh, particularly women's dormitory for black women. And then the rest of black women are expected to stay in homes in the community, things like that. So these you see these uh, um, these sort of de facto uh, attitudes really uh, be not becoming quite um, official matters of policy, but much closer to it. And, and other social examples like black students being excluded from YMCA Bible studies uh, by the turn of the century or. Uh, that, that, that's, that's very interesting too. So mm -hmm. that brings me, I mean, to the ultimate three letter word mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm why yeah what happened uh, why yeah I mean, it, it, so and because i'm i'm not sure i still understand yeah i mean it's a little bit i felt i, I think i said this in a note to you is i feel a little bit like after reading douglas egerton's book uh -huh. who's on the podcast time about the the generations of the house of adams yeah. and uh you know i think doug really struggles to answer why mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um why do you have John Quincy Adams' grandson giving lectures in 1868 South Carolina about the need for the you know the Democratic Party to be reunited. It's a little it's a little odd. Yeah. I mean, his his grandfather hasn't been dead for that long. <laughs> um, you know, is this just a way of urinating over the old man's grave? Uh, That's my metaphor, not his. <laughs> um, but in 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 this case, I, I have some ideas. But mm -hmm. what, what's your, what's your candidate for why? Yeah. Well, there's no. There's no single candidate, I suppose. No of single course candidate. there isn't. No, no monocausal explanations, please. Uh, there, and there's a variety of them. So, you know, to the, the Adams example uh, or uh, comparison, it's a generational shift that's happening. So if we think about who are these white students who are discriminating at, against their peers at, at Berea or, or at Oberlin in particular, um, they are the at best the children, maybe even the grandchildren of some of these original Oberlin folks who came of age at a very different moment. Um, mm -hmm. And so they're not seized with the abolitionist furor um, that characterized these institutions, that a, a place like Oberlin anyway, in the 1840s or 1850s, they're pretty far removed from that. Um, their concerns are uh, in some ways different. As I said, they're very invested in things like temperance, which by the way, is a classic evangelical reform, much like abolition. We reform ourselves uh, in our practices, then we extend it to the wider community. Mm -hmm. um, the other, well, one of the other uh, factors here too, is that they are, um, oh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> there are so many causes. Um, they, I think that they see their, um, Well, here's what I was going to say. One, one of the things that, that interests me from the start as a way of approaching the why question was a different why question, which is how come they didn't demand that the black students uh, be, uh, you know, expelled? Why didn't they just demand that the coll their colleges become all white? Because that didn't even happen at Berea. Um, it's the state of Kentucky that imposed that at Berea. Mm -hmm. And it never happened in Oberlin, right? Um, so... That should intrigue us, I think, mm -hmm. to a certain extent. They're that's not. A good, that's a good. That's a good question. They're not, yeah. and that to me was sort of the key because 
that I think gets to the real heart of the matter, which is that they're not opposed to the idea of African Americans advancement, particularly, but they don't see their their own um, uh, their own livelihood, their own um, moral state, their own souls. To go back to the beginning of our conversation, as tied up with the concerns of those people. So whereas it had been a overlapping struggle to some ways, now they're they're pursuing pursuing the cause of Christ. They're pursuing the cause of uh, of reform or, or refinement or whatever you want to say in at best in parallel. And of course, there are intellectual currents happening at the time to support this. There's a, the strain of postbellum liberalism, which is heavily emphasizing individual choice, free association. There's social evolutionism, which is such a strong, or aka social Darwinism, uh, which is talking about the the races as advancing separately uh, and on their own timelines and things like that. So there's a lot of... of um, uh, grist for the mill in terms of uh, that way of thinking. Um, and I think all of these things kind of coming together, you could argue that there's a there's a class angle too, at least in Berea as the school, some of the newer students are um, from a higher social echelon and more likely to see black peers as, as you know, the help than they are as, as, uh, as um, uh, friends. All of these things are, are coming together uh, at once. And it, so it doesn't lend itself to a really a tidy explanation, except to say that uh, there was were always gaps between uh, African-Americans' full admission and their full acceptance. And those gaps are widening with time. Um, partic- and they're, they're, those gaps are widened in part by the, the larger context that's changing. There's one other thing I would add to that, Stu. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I, 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 it hit me when I was, you, you said at, at some point, you talked about how this, the line is never drawn in the classroom. So mm-hmm. blacks and whites can always attend classes together. Mm-hmm. And I might be wrong, but um, I believe less in the power of ideas than I used to. Mm. Um, and I think that the cultures and social structures that we form do more to change us. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I can argue this for Berea, but I would say that Oberlin is becoming, Oberlin reflects the way that universities and colleges, uh, by 1900, certainly, it's more like us than it was like Oberlin in 1840. I see. Uh-huh. Um, it's becoming, we, um, and don't overstate this, mm-hmm. because this changes that, you know, you, Wellesley and Yale in the 1920s and 1930s basically seemed to be, you know, arms of the China, uh, arms of the China mission lobby. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but they're certainly going to think of at Oberlin as a, a college as a place for the mind and not mm-hmm. for the soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a place to get a credential increasingly. Mm. You know, you, you made that very telling remark and it's really hard for us, especially people with doctorates to get their heads around mm-hmm. that people would just go until they felt educated you know, they, they were interested in learning, not necessarily schooling, Yeah, which, which is a little chastening. Right. right. Um, and they felt they could estimate when they should leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but increasingly people are interested in the credential mm-hmm. by 1900. Mm-hmm. And they're interested in what's the important thing of college is what happens in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it is less important, you know, uh, until, you know, 
yeah, I mean, I don't want to overstate that, but there has to be some of what's going on. Yeah. The actual culture of college is changing. Right. And I don't take that up in the book, and, and maybe that's a shortcoming of the of my study, but... Not, didn't uh, say that. Just... <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, I can't do everything, right? No, uh, I can't. But, uh, but I think that there is some truth to that, and there's been some good work done on the secularization of, of universities in this same time period, and I think that's somewhat in the mix. Um but I also think that, you know, Oberlin's a huge player in the China mission, too. Uh, it is. It is. I mean, this is, you just said, I mean, so yeah. they're, they're, they are doing that, but there is, I mean, it'd be interesting. I, I, you know, this is in a different life, maybe I would be interested in seeing, you know, can we compare this? Are there some other, are there any other play? Well, I don't know. I, I just don't know. If it does seem to me that emphasis on edu- the way that they conceive of education mm-hmm. it has to has to be somewhat different. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it in terms of curriculum, for instance, something that that I think about from time to time is that the students at these institutions, by the late nineteenth century, you're right. They're at a place like Berea because there's a more of a um, an increasing technical or industrial right. emphasis yeah. that the curriculum could differ between a person in that. Um, in that course of study and someone who's pursuing a traditional bachelor's degree. But if we think about the civil war era or the antebellum period, everyone who's pursuing a bachelor's degree. And for the most part, the students, the women who are pursuing the, the quote unquote ladies degree, it's almost the exact same curriculum for everyone. There's no majors, uh, <laughs> which is, always shocks my students when I tell them that it's no ma- you don't get a major in anything in the uh, 19th century or before. Uh, and so there's a, it's easier to find common cause, no doubt, when you're mm-hmm. studying the same things. It makes it easier to join a literary society because you can, you've read all the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're on the same political wavelength, like I said, that helps too. And all of these factors combined are make for a different experience, no doubt, than, than the experience that we see with the more modern university, certainly, or even the more modern liberal arts college. Um, and so that that is a factor, I think, I think too. I mean, these colleges have tried in different ways to go back to Berea for a second to maintain or even restore that earlier character of the institution. So uh, Berea, as you say, maintains a uh, work study requirement. They even call it labor, which I Mm -hmm. love. (laughs) That's a 19th century word. Uh, And the students are required today to take courses in African-American studies, women's studies, and Appalachian studies to be aware of their own history so that there is a commitment to understanding their past, I think, and to getting students to reflect on those connections. But absent those kind of institutional, um, uh, you know, arrangements, curricular arrangements, I don't know if we can necessarily expect students to, to, to uh, take up the charge in quite the same way, unless there are these like kind of outside forces happening or these, these internal incentives that would get them to do that. Well, my guest today has been John Frederick Bell. He's the author of Degrees of Equality, Abolitionist Colleges and the Politics of Race. Highly re- recommended for anyone, everyone interested in America's c- complex racial history, as we would say on NPR, or equality, equity, and the history of higher education in the United States. John, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. My pleasure. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 